Well, this morning we are going to be in several passages, uh, but I'm going to begin by reading two of them. So, uh, so I'll be reading from Hebrews 9, verse 15, and then jump right over to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. The author of Hebrews writes, Therefore he is, speaking of Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And then 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he bless it richly to his people. So I'd actually intended this week to move into the Old Testament book of First Samuel. So we've been in uh, we were in Luke for uh, 102 sermons, uh, which translate to about two and a half years. Uh, and so we were in there for quite some time. And so I like to jump back and forth when we're in the New Testament and then, have, you know, jump over to the Old Testament. We need to get a good, uh, you know, thorough experience of the different parts of God's word. Um, uh, as, you know, as Presbyterians, sometimes we're guilty of just hanging, out, hanging around in Paul's letters because we just like how cerebral Paul is and how, hey, you know, he's like all those things. It's like, but you need to jump around. You need to get in there. You need to get into the minor prophets. You need to get into uh, the, the, uh, the, the, uh, what we call the history books. We need to get into the Pentateuch. You need to get into the wisdom literature. You need to get in different parts of uh, our, even the New Testament, the Gospels and the Book of Revelation and uh, pastorals and, and such. So, um, and so we were going to jump into First Samuel, but I, 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 something just was kind of bothering me, and I was like, you know, what I would like to do, maybe it's just because uh, Luke was the first gospel that in 12 years have preached all the way through. We've jumped in and out of different gospels, but the first time gone through a gospel, and of course I picked the longest one <laughs> to go for, go with, you know, go big or go home, that's what we, that's what we say, so, uh, but, um, but also, the, the Dutch scholar Herman Bovink, uh, he wrote that all the things that, that the apostles in the Christian church later taught about the person of Christ were already contained in principle in the synoptic gospels. That is, everything that was written by the Paul and the apostles in the New Testament after the gospels is all contained in the gospels. They're just explaining it. They're applying it, applying it. They're, they're making it clear as to what the implication and the significance of the, of the life and ministry of Christ while he was on the earth. Now, of course, his ministry continues as the book of Acts makes clear. Um, so uh, oftentimes called the Acts of the Apostles. It's more appropriately the Acts of Jesus through the Apostles is what that book is uh, more appropriate t- appropriately titled. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to take a few weeks and meditate upon what it means, the implications of Luke's gospel, what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, specifically what it means for him to be the mediator of the new covenant. And this is because there are still many misunderstandings that persist about Jesus. Not all will accept Jesus to be their savior, to be sure. But if that's going to happen, let it happen, because, uh, let it happen against 
uh, in spite of right teaching about Jesus, not because of ignorance. And even in the church, we can gloss over the significance of Christ's ministry by making it reductive, by trying to make it simple. And it's a good impulse there. But in our quest for simplicity, oftentimes we end up stripping the doctrine of Christ and and what it means for him to be a mediator. We, we, We strip it of its beauty for the sake of efficiency. And, to, and so, and I would actually submit to you that many, many, if not most, of the serious errors in the church, even today, can be traced back to a faulty uh, doctrine of Christ, to a faulty view of Jesus. I mean, what is it that causes Paul, when you're reading Paul in his letters, what, what is it that caused him to break into rapturous joy as he writes about the grace of God in the book of Romans? Just interrupts and just starts singing doxologies. What makes, what makes Paul pray in Ephesians that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. When was the last time you prayed to be strong enough to comprehend the love of Jesus? This would suggest that at times our view of Christ and his ministry is too low. It's too small. It's too reductive. Now truly we have to admit it can never be high enough. We can never appreciate Jesus as he deserves to be appreciated. We can never worship him as he deserves to be worshipped truly. Why? Because he is God in his very nature. But he is the son of God and infinitely worthy of praise. And we are finite creatures. But here we have an opportunity this morning. To enlighten our minds and our heart. To rejuvenate our souls in the doctrine of the Savior. And so the sermon this morning is going to be flying high. Um, at 30,000 feet, I will be your captain. That will be the extent uh, the, uh, of the detail I will get into the flying narratives. We have two pilots. So I'm not getting into that. So, uh, but, but the sermon will be flying high. We're covering a, lo- a broad landscape as we survey what it means for Jesus to be the medi- mediator. But we're going to boil it down to three things, right? Uh, three things. And first, it's that for Jesus to be the mediator comes down to three things. It comes down to a choice that God the Father makes, and then two gifts that God the Father gives. For, for Christ to be the mediator, it comes down to a choice that God the Father makes, and then two gifts God the Father brings. So first, Jesus, uh, we uh, see in the scriptures, is the mediator chosen by God the Father. And at the very outset here, as we think about what it means for Christ to be our mediator, it it requires, the implication is there, it's obvious, is that God is the initiator of salvation. Before we identify Jesus as the mediator, we need to ask the question, why do we need a mediator? We need a mediator because of sin. Because death reigns in the world and we cannot stop it. Suffering and chaos are the ever-present reminders that evil is in the world and needs a remedy. A remedy that we cannot in ourselves or even combined arm in arm together provide. 
The problem is that we ourselves are fallen and sinful. And, and, and so we, even our remedy itself that we would provide would come under the justice of God. Because it wouldn't do it. So it's, uh, you know, the, the best summary of parenting is, is, is teaching, so parenting is just teaching fools to be wise. But why is parenting so hard? Because you're a fool. Right? And so, and so, and that, that's, that's the best summary of parenting. I came from the head of the counseling department at my seminary, all right, by the way. <laughs> so, so, seeing our predicament, did humanity gather together to appeal to God and say, God, will you please offer mercy? And God said, you know what? That's a good idea. I hadn't thought of that yet. Is that what they were doing at the Tower of Babel? No. From the first moment of our entry into that sinful estate when Adam and Eve rebelled against their maker, the Lord God spoke in his judgment upon Satan a promise of deliverance to fallen man. In Genesis 3.15 he writes, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now this this, this uh, uh, in Genesis 3.15, is not, as some scholars have put forward, the explanation of why women are so predominantly afraid of snakes. Okay? That is not the appropriate interpretation of this verse. Without any pleading from us, in fact, he gave no time to do so. God, in the midst of cursing Humanity, rightly for its arrogance and presumption, promises redemption, relief, and help. He promised to destroy the head of corruption and sin, and so to bring about a better situation for his people. And this is according to God's promise. In Genesis, this required... One who would be the definite and true seed of the woman who would be the one to crush the serpent. It was an answer to this promise that God gave his promises to Abraham, to Moses, and to David, and to the people of God in the new covenant as recorded in Jeremiah. But it is also put in summary fashion by John in in those familiar words of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You can go directly from John 3.15 to John 3.16, because it is the fulfillment of the promise he makes in Genesis. Our point to here is only this. We did not love God, nor do we make ourselves lovable to him that he might accept us. But God, in view of the evil of humanity, did in first, in love, promise and make provision of His Son Jesus to bring redemption to us. It is of the Son and the costly love that He has for us as His people that we sing the line, From heaven He came and sought her to be His holy bride. With His own blood He bought her. And for her life, he died. 
We serve a holy God who is perfect and just, but a God who delights in mercy and who according to his purpose and pleasure determines to save sinners like us and to make us into his children by the blood of his own true son. So God initiates salvation. But for, God, and for Jesus to be the mediator also means that God the Father chose and ordained his son to be the mediator. Jesus, uh, as the son of God, did not rebel against God the Father and say, well, you're the judgy one, I'm going to deliver him. Right? He didn't do like the Greeks had where Prometheus stole the fire from Zeus because Zeus was so hard on the humans and Prometheus steals the fire from Zeus because he had kindness and mercy on, uh, on, on the humans. And then Zeus changed him to the rock to have his liver pecked out by birds uh, uh, for eternity. So um, don't worry, Hercules saved him. It's okay. All right? But, um, but that's not what happened. Okay? Nor... Did we pick Jesus out of a lineup of, of Messiah candidates of some kind of weird you know, dating show? I'm going to Messiah Bachelor. The Apostle Peter wrote this in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. That Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for our sake. It is God the Father planned... For the son to come. And then he made it happen. The son of God is the second person of the Trinity. He is the eternal son of God. The first four or five hundred years of church history is hammering this out. And and, and this truth out. And understanding this from the scriptures. But this speaks to God's eternal purpose. To be merciful to his people. Through a mediator. Which would be the son of God incarnate. Emmanuel. God with us. God in the flesh. We'll have more to say on that in the coming weeks. I told you, we're, we're flying high and, and we're really just kind of, we're kind of just taking off and just gaining altitude at this point. The point is, is that the mediator could not be just anyone. It couldn't have been Jesus or Bob, right? He had to be the fulfillment of prophecy, for sure. But he had to be one who was called by God the Father to do the work. He had to be one who willingly received that call and was admitted to the office of mediator. He must further be equipped with the necessary attributes to be able to fulfill the requirements of the work. This is where we get the two natures of Christ, which we'll go, again we'll talk about in the coming weeks. But what is that work? What is the work that the mediator does? Well, as Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one mediator, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The work of the mediator is to be in the middle between God and men. It is to reconcile the offending party to the offended party, which would be God. Paul here makes clear that Jesus is not merely one of many mediators, but the true mediator to which any other previous mediator points. But he is the one true mediator between God and men. There were other lesser mediators, or, or, or we might say typological mediators, that pointed forward to the great mediator in Israel's time. Moses, the priests, the prophets, even David at times, uh, functioned as mediators between God and his people. 
but these were insufficient. Because if they were not insufficient, then God would not have promised to send one greater than Moses, as Moses himself did promise. He would not have promised to create a greater, uh, to have a greater priesthood than the priesthood of the Levites, as he did, the priesthood of Melchizedek. He would not have promised to send the son of David, who would be greater than David himself, which he did. As we'll see in a moment, Jesus fulfills all of these and more. But for now, we need to wonder at the God who initiates love and mercy to undeserving sinners through the calling and the sending of the mediator who is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And if we are tempted to ask why we have been shown such goodness, let us not conclude that it is because there is something commendable in and of ourselves, that we have some indiscernible quality that God just can't resist. No, it's like we confessed earlier. It is all comes back to God's sovereign goodness and pleasure out of his mere love. He wants to love you. He does love you. He loves me, but not because we're worthy of it, but because he deigns to do so. And his love will not stop. It will not end. This brings us to our second point. The first of the two gifts that I talked about earlier, which is that Jesus is the gift of God to us for our salvation. Jesus, as the mediator, is the gift of God to us for our salvation. And there's four things to say here. We'll move through these rather quickly. Uh, But first is that Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. I know for a fact that I've preached a sermon on each of those offices. So we're going to actually fly right through this. But as I mentioned only moments ago, Moses prophesied that God would raise up one greater than Moses. And in all the days of Israel, no greater prophet was found. No one ever, no one is ever identified as that prophet, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. That's who Moses was talking about. They were still waiting for the one who would be greater than Moses to come when Jesus showed up. The apostles actually cite that particular promise in Acts 3.22, identifying Jesus as the servant who fulfills the promise in, in, in Acts 3.26. They say, this is him. God has done it. And it's Jesus. The author of Hebrews demonstrates in his letter how Jesus is not only the greater Moses, but but he is the greater high priest of a different order as described in the Psalms. And so in Hebrews chapter 5, verses uh, 5 and 6, he says he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, the name Melchizedek meaning the king of righteousness. And we're told in Genesis that Melchizedek was also the king of Salem, which uh, which means he was also the king of peace. That Jesus is the high priest of that order of righteousness and of priest. He is the priest king, which is the third thing that Jesus is. 2 Samuel 7 records the great covenant that God made with David to bring forth from his line the one who would rule forever, an eternal kingdom that has no bounds, no end to its glory. And in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 to 33, the angel comes announcing the birth of Jesus as the fulfillment of those wonderful promises. He says, and he, says he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus being the mediator, 
doesn't mean that Jesus is really good at, at settling disputes between humanity and God. It means that he is the prophet, priest, and king of his people. It is he who reveals to us the mysteries of God as he is in his person, is the very fulfillment of the promises of God and the focal point of redemptive history. As the Apostle Paul says, all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. He is the one who sacrifices himself as the Lamb of God to take away our sin. He is both priest and sacrifice. And he is the one who rules and governs his church, defending her until he brings us into our glorious inheritance. And at the same time, when he comes to judge the world. Secondly, as the gift of the, being the gift of the mediator to his people, Jesus is the head and savior of the church. Ephesians 1 verses 22 to 23 says, And he put all things under his feet, that God the Father put all things under Christ's feet. He's, he's working from uh, the Psalms. Uh, he says, And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. For Jesus to be the mediator means that he is also the head of the church that the church is his body. That is, he cares for his body as, he, as our authority. He gives the body its direction and nourishment. As the body of Christ, then, we are not self-determined, self-defined, or self-directed. We are directed by our head, the Lord Jesus Christ, who speaks to us, even today, by his spirit and his word. As the body of Jesus, he is our Savior. He cares for us. He delivers us from sin and death. And while in this present age we are subjected to the sufferings of the fallen world, our spiritual estate is an eternal one and one that cannot be violated by any power upon this world. And we are yet still promised resurrection of the body. And the glorious new heavens and the earth, such that the Lord Jesus promised that all who trust in him, though they may physically die, shall never die. Third, Jesus is the heir of all things. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the author tells us, Long ago, in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in a particular way, by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Obviously, lots to unpack in those, in those verses. But there are several such passages in the New Testament that speak to this, this, these, this, these realities concerning Jesus. But the point is that Jesus is the heir of the promises of God. He, by his ministry as the mediator, has promised to share the inheritance that is rightfully his and only his, he has promised to share that inheritance with us. And that, what is that inheritance? It is nothing less than the kingdom of God. And it is perfectly sensible that the Son would be the heir to the Father, to his Father. Not that God the Father is going anywhere in any time soon, uh, or at all. It's impossible. But rather, the Father, in love for the Son, has determined to give his Son a great inheritance. And by his son, the father has determined to give us a share in that inheritance, which is eternal and glorious. You know, how many stories are there? We love to watch them and read them. 
The stories where someone is blessed by a long-lost wealthy relative who left everything to them, right? That's one of like Charles Dickens, like when he's writing a story, Charles Dickens, you know, that's his way to get out of a jam anytime. It's just like suddenly a wealthy uncle passed away you haven't heard about before and all of a sudden now you're rich now. Yay, all your problems are solved, (laughs) right? And so so I feel like he just kind of wrote himself in a corner sometimes to be like, and rich uncle, there we go, all right? You know, uh, let let me add some adverbs because I get paid by the word, all right? And... That's, bo- that's why he's so wordy, by the way, because he, he got paid by the word. You would write long books, too. If someone paid you by the word, you're like, adverbs are my friend. So, but we don't have a fantasy here. Uh, we have God the Father who makes his Son the heir of all things, that we might share in his glory and goodness through the ministry of the mediator, Jesus Christ. Fourth, Jesus is the judge of the world. Acts 17, verses 30 to 31. And, and it's interesting that in, in Western modern cultures, we don't, the type, we don't like focusing on this, uh, on this passage as much. But the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And that man, of course, they're speaking of is Jesus Christ. He is the judge of the world. He will judge the world. Here we find an overlooked aspect of Jesus' role as the mediator. For Jesus, in going to the cross, received the judgment of God for his people. But there remains the final judgment that is yet to come. A judgment that will be made of every man, woman in the world. that By necessity, putting all that is wrong in the world to right. And that is precisely the work of the mediator. That in fulfillment of the grace of God and deliverance of sinners by faith into an eternal glorious inheritance, the the justice of God will be made complete through the condemnation and punishment of all wickedness and evil in the world. That it might be destroyed in the lake of fire. That goodness and light might reign forever. Jesus then, as the mediator, is the gift of God to us. For by the work of the mediator, God gives to us the prophet, priest, and king, the one that we need. He fashions the full, a glorious person. He, 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 he unites us to him. And this, this person of Christ, who is our head, and his church, the body. He fulfills his, his promise of a glorious kingdom that is free of evil and darkness as pictured in the last few chapters of the book of Revelation. The darkness is expelled forever by his final judgment. The kingdom is made full. His people are comforted as we are granted fellow heirs with Christ and we receive that which we have known by faith. We receive all of this. By faith and not by works, with gratitude. Finally, the second gift that God gives is that the church is the gift of God the Father given to Jesus for his glory. The church was given to Jesus, we know for sure, uh, because Jesus says it. In Jesus' priestly prayer of John 17, he says that he has been given authority to give eternal life to all whom God the Father has given to him. In verse 2 of that prayer, 
in verse 6 of John 17, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Indeed, he goes on in verse 9 saying that he is in fact praying for all those who have been given to him by the Father. Who are they? Well, well, the scriptures go on to identify them as the elect of God, the people of God. Now before our eyes, who are the elect of God? Well, there are those who sincerely and truly believe and profess the name of Christ as their Lord and Savior. Just like we confessed earlier, what is true faith? Those who truly and sincerely trust in Jesus. But Jesus is clear that the church, the people of God from all time, belong to God the Father. And He has given the church to His Son that Jesus would be our Lord. We have been given to Him that He would receive the name that is above every name, that His glory would shine forth, And further, the glory of the Father would be made manifest. But also along with that, this dovetails with it, is that the church is thus saved by Jesus. As Paul wrote, Jesus is the mediator between God and man. And fundamentally, this means that he is the one who, as Paul says, gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus gave his life not by accident and not by a random accident, not by a random act, a random moment. You know, God the Father wasn't making, you know, lemonade out of lemons because he sent Jesus into the world and said, oh, I didn't expect them to kill him. I guess I better try to go to plan B here. Jesus gave his life. At the proper time, Paul says, he writes, he writes elsewhere that this occurred in the fullness of time. In accordance with the purpose of God, that Jesus would come and fulfill the promises of God and make satisfaction for the guilt of the sin of his people. And he indeed is the true Savior. The Apostle Paul writes of this in Romans 8, verses 28 through, 20, through 30. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. The bad things, the good things, all things work together for, for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. In order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. That is, Jesus is not a potential Savior bringing possible salvation. We see Paul's glorious chain of salvation there. Saying to us, appealing to us, no, no, no. He is the mediator. The only mediator. And to all who trust in Him, He will not possibly save you. He will save you. Why? Because Jesus is Himself the Gospel. He is our wisdom. He is our righteousness. He is our salvation. He is the salvation of God. And so we have established this morning the themes and concepts we will be exploring over the next 
several weeks. But make no mistake, this is not an intellectual exercise. My purpose here is that we would leave the Gospel of Luke, meditating and pondering the significance of Jesus' words and deeds, His dying and His rising, what it means for Him to be the Messiah indeed, for what it means for Him to be the mediator of the covenant. My hope is that if anyone today does not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that you would do so today. That you would know that God has loved you before you were born. That He has loved you concretely and completely in His Son Jesus. That you would know that Jesus' death for your sin and His resurrection for your life is yours today and only by trusting in Him. And for you Christians here, young and old, my prayer is that we would be corrected of any errors we have concerning our Messiah, our mediator, and what it means for him to be the mediator. I hope we will be corrected from any false sentimentality that we have attached to Jesus. That we would be freed from any harsh severity that we have put upon him as if he's just staring daggers at us all the time, waiting to crush us because we have not proven worthy of his sacrifice. Most of all, I pray that we would be struck with wonder and awe that we have such a savior. There'd be a part of us that would leave today saying, it's too good to be true. It's too much. Lord, it's too much for me. You got to make me stronger because I can't handle this. That's my prayer. Because you may not be known, accepted, or loved in this world. But in Christ you are known eternally. Accepted completely. And loved absolutely. By the one who is not only your maker, but also your redeemer. Let us then entrust ourselves to Christ this morning. The one who is the only mediator between God and men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus we have the true mediator. Lord, we pray that you would correct us today of the false ideas that we have about sin, about unbelief, about the gospel, about Jesus. False beliefs that enable us to think of ourselves better than we are. False beliefs that may lead us to believe that we are unredeemable and unlovable. But may we come to see Jesus. And in seeing Him, see the evil wickedness of our sin. See the penalty of of the the, the guilt that, that, that we are guilty of. That would otherwise strike terror in our hearts except to know that Jesus has paid it all and satisfied divine wrath for every bit of the judgment we deserve. And may we entrust ourselves to such a Savior who is our prophet, our priest, our king, who is the head and Savior of the church, who is the judge of the world. May we do so with every confidence, not in ourselves, but in him, that by your spirit, by your word, 
we will come into our glorious inheritance. No matter what suffering, affliction uh, may travail our souls. Father, we pray that you would give us that strength, that hope, not in ourselves, not in blindly, but in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is our mediator. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.